We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, the man who I catch grinding hours and hours of film in his free time when he doesn't have to worry about some jerk-off crashing into his car and running away, and that's Nick Turchin. Nick, feel free to rant about that hit-and-run upstate New Yorker guy first if you want to, but if not, want to move past it. Today is all about the New York Giants secondary. We're just catching up. We've been breaking down the roster position group by position group during the dead period before training camp. This week, we broke from the norm earlier on Tuesday and had special guest Draft Network uh, guest Jordan Reed to give an outside perspective on the roster. Thought it was a really strong podcast. He had some really good takes uh, and more optimism than you would expect about the Giants roster from somebody who's outside of the organization, outside of covering the team. I would definitely check that out. Lastly, before we dive deep into the defensive back on this roster, I did want to drop one shameless plug. Our podcast is growing, and that's because of you. And we're starting to see some of that, which we can't get into too in-depth right now, but we're starting to see some of the fruits of our labor, and it's awesome. If you do enjoy our content and you want to help us grow even bigger, please do us a favor and download every episode that hits on iTunes. Even if you just listen to it without the download, just hit the download to help us. Subscribe to the show, rate us, and pass it along to any Giants fans you know who want to learn more about the team and more about the in-depth game of, it, of football. Without further ado, it's time to dive into these defensive backs. Nick, before we break it down on an individual level, I wanted to drop a little bit of a brief primer. And look, I know the word brief and Dan Schneier don't really go synonymously, but I do want to touch on the overall position and the roles within this defense. If you look at the overall philosophy of where this defense is moving under James Betcher, and under Dave Gettleman, with the fact that the Giants were in nickel defense on two-thirds of their defensive snaps in 2018, 
and some kind of sub package on a whopping 84% of their defensive snaps in 2018, it's easy to see how important the defensive back position really is for this team building and for the roster construction moving forward. And the Giants have made that clear with their draft and free agency decisions over the past two off seasons. We'll fully dive into that on the show. Um, now, I know, I know, trust me, it's popular to hate on the Giants right now. And I know the backlash anyone receives, including myself, after any kind of positive take on this franchise. But I don't care. I don't worry about that. All I do is call it like I see it. That's how I've always done this. And this is a unit I'm excited about, the defensive backs. I see a lot of competition. I see a lot of unknown. I see a lot of talent. With the exception of Janoris Jenkins and the two safeties, I think anything can really happen in training camp with regards to how the Giants are going to fill out these roles. But before we dive into each individual player, Nick, I want you to give a primer on the defensive backs and how they're used within the scheme because they are used very differently. So I'm going to let you dive into that. I'm going to interject at times where I feel like we might need to clarify things for the fans because obviously the way you talk about football, Nick, even has my head spinning a lot of the time. And I learn a lot every podcast. I say that every time and I'll say it again because it's the truth. So Nick, let me, let's go ahead and give me a primer on this defense and break down how we're going to kind of go about breaking down each individual defensive back within the primer of the defense. Yeah, definitely. We're going to take the look that we kind of did with the defensive lines, and we're going to kind of give some broad groups where we think guys are going to kind of go into. So let's start with those groups. Um, starting to the wide side of the field. So the hashes, even in the NFL, they do matter. The wide side of the field. The first player on the outside, the cornerback, right? Let's say we're going to label him a field corner. Now those that watched a little bit of college ball, high school ball, or maybe familiar with more of these terms that aren't as kind of used in the NFL level, or at least on the media side of the NFL level. The next player to the inside of him, usually covering down on a slot receiver, is the nickelback. So the nickelback in Betcher's defense and many, many defenses is always set to the wide side of the field. Usually the formation strength is to the wide side of the field. But on the, but on the, the, the highest number of plays, the nickelback is going to be to the field. For those looking and thinking about last year, that was mostly Grant Haley. The free safety position is going to be, we're going to describe a too high defense. The free safety position is the safety to the wide side of the field. That mostly was Curtis Riley last year. The boundary safety is the safety to the short side of the field. That was mostly Landon Collins last year. Finally, the boundary corner on the short side of the field, playing to the short side. Now, the Giants played sides, so these the field and boundary were interchangeable most of the time, and then they mixed and kind of did random things within that, to be fair, and sometimes in some cases matched up. But basically, that's how we kind of think of them in a, in a defensive in, uh, in the defensive way. Now, the, before we get to the coverages, what we have to kind of understand is, because all defenses are built this way, what are the roles that these guys are going to have in the run fit? How do you right. defend the run? You have to stop the run first, and all coaches like build upon that. So... The front that we think about, let's just think about a basic five-man offensive line for simplicity's sake. It's going to be 11 personnel probably because that's what everyone runs now. And so that means what we just described in the coverage is nickel to match up against that. So with these and five- just back it up real quick, Nick, so every, just in case anyone needs to be caught up on it, 11 personnel on the offensive side of the ball means they're using three wide receivers, one tight end, and one running back. Big Correct. Line. Correct. So – Let's just say that tight end is off the ball, as, it, as they often are. So there's five offensive linemen. If you're, there's five offensive linemen, that means there's six gaps created that the defense has to account for in some way. The vast majority of the time at the NFL level, those 
gaps are accounted by one man, one man per gap, a one gap scheme. So if you need to, if you need six men, basically, how do you get those six men? That's those six men are usually the front, usually some level of a four two front, which we described on the, on the defensive line podcast. So to bring it to the secondary, just to back this up real quick, Nick, and again, I'm just going to keep doing this because I know in the past people have talked about we go sometimes a little too fast and a little too in-depth. So remember, for the Giants, a 4-2 front or a four-man front is not the old-school style of Giants football you're thinking about. This doesn't mean you're going to have Tuck and OC on the edge with Fred Robbins and whoever else at the defensive tackle positions and Barry Cofield, all those guys. What this means is two interior guys, a combination of Lawrence, E.J. Hill, Dalvin Tomlinson, and maybe a couple of those other guys, McIntosh, Olsen Pierre, whoever else fits in there, two of those guys on the interior, and then two edge guys. Those could be Lorenzo Carter. That could be uh, Marcus Golden. That could be Kareem Martin, all of those guys. So that's the four-man front. And then the two the two that Nick is referring to are the linebackers that you're going to see, Trian, Ogletree on almost every snap, most likely, and then someone else playing that linebacker position next time. Okay, go on, Nick. Yeah, so that's, and that's huge to get. So outside, so outside of that, we're back now to the defensive backs. The key thing to think about is outside of that, the players in the run fit, the two player the, on either side of the field, you're going to have alley responsibilities or force defender responsibilities. Basically the first guys that can make a play on the ball on a play on a running play that are not in the box. Coaches like to call them box overhangs. And if you get into, if you really want to take and run away with stuff like this, this basically guys in the college in the college game like Don Brown and elsewhere, they consider the foundation of their defense almost how you deal with those overhangs and what you do with them to either blitz or to make the, the offense do different things. It depends on those overhangs. So the overhangs that we're referring to to the wide side of the field would be the nickelback. To the short side of the field, it's in some ways – it's often the boundary safety. It can be the will in other ways, but it just let's just think of it simplicity's sake. It's the boundary safety. He's the first guy that can make the play on a, on a run that goes to the outside or just a run in general, run support that's not in the fit. It's important to think about that because if you're not in the fit, you have to keep leverage in what you're doing as you read the play, but you're, it's not the same as go fill this gap. If it's power, you got to go move to another gap. You, it, it's not, it's, it's less restrictive, I would say. So, Nick, let me just interject here to make sure I'm following as well. You have your six box guys we talked about, the two interior linemen, the two edge, and the two backers. Now, you have these overhangs, essentially. You have the safety overhang, and then you have the nickel cornerback or the nickel back, whatever you want to call him. These two guys are not technically in the box to fill an eight-man box in a sense because I know some people might be thinking it like that. Most, in, in a sense, they actually have more responsibility in almost any other position on any given play. Is that correct? That's kind. Of, that's one way to think of it because they're going to be the first point of contact. That's not going to directly have gap responsibility in the run, but they're almost always going to have some sort of passing. I mean, almost always passing responsibility in coverage. So and just before we move move on, Nick, just so we can be we can be clear here, guys, because we're going to reference this again. These are going to be two positions that eventually we're going to talk when we talk about the players. We're going to say he fits into the overhang safety bucket or. He fits into the nickel, say, or the nickel bucket. So just keep these positions in mind when we reference them later. Okay, go on, Nick. Gotcha. So I had a couple, couple cool co uh, conversations with coaches recently at the high school and college, and even a little bit at the NFL level. And basically, there's three types of nickels in the league right now. There's, and we're talking about the nickels to the wide side of the field. Then we're going to talk about the weak side overhang as well. But let's start with the wide side. The wide side, there's three different types. You either have a coverage guy who's really more of a pure corner. He's, he's almost 
he's basically his ability, his ability to mirror and match in space is very, very good. Then you have a, the second type would be a box linebacker. So this is more of like a linebacker who's really run first. That's how his mind is. That's why the way he's been programmed and how his style of play likes to get downhill. But he feels, he feels comfortable in space. And it's one of those players where like they're almost freakish athletes that they're 200 and X pounds, but in space, they can do a lot of good. They can cover ground, they're twitchy, and in short area space and short area zones, they're very, very good. The third type would be the third, like really a safety type who's not a liability in the run, but he feels very comfortable rolling him back in, in, in coverage versus whatever the defense is going to show to him, but he can just hold up against the run just enough where it's like, you know, you, you kind of don't feel like he's a, he's a weakness. Those right. three types of players play basically in that type of position. Um, I think from a value perspective, thinking about team building from this now, I think that the Giants value guys highly that can fit maybe two of those buckets or maybe one and a half of those buckets where they're not just a pure coverage guy. They're not just a box backer who's run first only, but he's fast in space. They're guys that can do different things as, they, as they're asked to, what's important, what they're asked to do within the coverage scheme. So these overhangs, we're talking about the nickel now, the boundary safety. I would say the boundary safety, it's actually really the similar type profiles. It just tends to be a player who's more comfortable in short area space because there's less space over there and versus the nickelback who has to cover more ground because you're playing to the wide side of the field. So with that, so with that in mind, the only other player, the one last thing that we're going to mention, because everyone always wants to get to this, what's the what's the money backer? The money backer, to simplify, is really a player in the box, part of that six man front, that's big enough to have a run responsibility on every down, but can cover a tight end or someone vertical vertically down the field very comfortably away from the line of scrimmage from a shallow position. And is one of those things, it's like almost like a misfit. Like you wouldn't, they used to call him betweeners. It's a guy that's not really a linebacker. He's not really a safety. And he's really not just a pure coverage guy in the traditional sense, the traditional, hey, you're going to do this 100% of the time. And so that position can be occupied in the giant scheme by either player, the, the Mike or the Will. Uh, most oftentimes on third down, it's going to be the guy closest to the tight end because that tight end is going to be uncovered. And now I think that's the basic part. Okay. So the only thing that we wanted to get to is, is, is Nick, why are you describing it in these buckets? Understanding that some of these buckets really sound the same like other buckets. It seems like the buckets kind of overlap and that's exactly right. right. They overlap in traits. And the only example that I want to use um, is a play that I highlighted on Twitter. I asked call, I, I asked coaching Twitter um, what this coverage was called yesterday. And I got basically 15 DMs and like a lot of activity that took up most of my day in terms of guys commenting and pointing out what it is and where they see it. It's covers that Betcher ran um, and he ran a, a fair amount last year, but most kind of what I would say famously or what I remember the most is against Indianapolis at the end of the first half. And this is a coverage where this is a two high coverage. So basically we just described the field safety and a boundary safety. And within this two high coverage, it actually rotates into a cover three via a very, odd way where the safeties both safeties buzz up forward to the second tier the money backer runs all the way back to the middle of the field as the deep the lone deep safety and the corners basically play different techniques than they usually do it looks kind of like chaos at the line of at the at the snap as the as the two high look completely morphs and changes to a one high look wow. the reason why I'm, the reason why i'm saying all this is betcher doesn't do this just to do this 
the next play on second down and 10, he literally calls the same coverage, but it's as if those box overhangs all rotate one step like musical chairs, and then they all play the same roles that they play. They all play the next person's role up in, in line. So the rotation back comes from the nickelback. Grant Haley runs way back to the uh, way back to the middle of the field, and he's the middle field close safety, the deep safety. Um, the uh, the money backer is in a blitz position on the line of scrimmage in the B gap, and he retreats. Um, Sean Chandler retreats to the middle hook, basically to the middle second tier defender. The safeties move up, but everyone had changed positions. And the reason why I use this example is not to show oh, how crazy Betcher is, but that that this encapsulates his mindset that he wants players that at the in one drive with the same personnel can basically play the next man's position in the defensive backfield. It makes it so that, and what did it do on this play? Andrew Luck paused. He, he saw the coverage and literally stopped at the top of his drop as he was hitching and didn't deliver the ball, giving enough time for the simulated pressure to get there in a hurry, and it was an incomplete pass. Now, most people say, well, where does that show up in the stat book? It's maybe a hurry, and that's not a sack, and I get it. But that th- these types of schemes are what – the better colleges and what Betcher has been doing for the last half of last year. And I think we are going to see more of it this year. And what he really told you with this draft is you're seeing guys that can handle this from a mental perspective. And with that, we think we should go to the players. Yeah. And before we dive into the players, Nick, I think it's really important to say based on everything Nick said, well, first of all, I mean, I, you won't find me, you won't find a comment passing about when we talk about the sacks versus pressures debate, where I have to say for the last time, anyone who comes at me and talks about sacks and, and being the and be all end all pass pass defense and pass, you know, and, and successful pass rush, I'm going to just shove you to the side because this is just a perfect example of how, of, of how coaching can, can get simulated pressure and can throw off a quarterback like Andrew Luck, who's obviously one of the best at processing in the NFL to the point where, you know, he's throwing an incomplete pass, they're punting and, the, and they're getting off the field. And I think based on what Nick broke down to me before this and what he just tried to break down here, and hopefully we were clear in our breakdown, it goes to show you just how important this defensive back position is. It's a position that Betcher is expecting players to play multiple roles in. It's a position that it's a position that Betcher is expecting them to play multiple roles in within the same defensive drive, and it's the only position. It's not the only position, but it's the position with the most responsibility, with by far, without a doubt, within Betcher's system. So, on that note, keep that in mind as we dive into defensive back, and we're going to do this player by player, and we're going to start with the three constants that I believe are going to be on the field for close to 100 percent of the snap, no matter what, and that's. And that's Janoris Jenkins, Antoine Bethea, and, and Jabril Pepper. So let's start this off, Nick, with Jenkins. By the pro football focus metrics, and I do like how they break down the cornerback positions because I know people debate other positions they break down and whatnot. He did take a major step back in 2018. Nick, based on what you saw, and more importantly, uh, do you believe, based on what you saw, do you agree with that? And more importantly, do you believe he can return to his 2016 and 2017 level with the Giants in 2019? Uh, I think that I think that the levels that you saw there was a comfort in a in a in a system that was calling the majority of calls in zone and particularly cover two zone. Um, I know that I wouldn't call Jenkins the prototypical cover two corner, which people think about someone who's physical and fast and plays really well in the in the you know in the flat and is kind of that old school Tampa two corner. I wouldn't really classify him there, but I think that he's a guy who likes to have zone eyes. 
So zone eyes looking at the quarterback and being able to have yeah. a feel within the quarterback and then moving when the quarterback moves based upon what, what he's seeing within the pattern distribution. Um, you just don't get – you get that a fair amount with Betcher, but you don't get it all the time. With Spags, you got it in the play calling mix. A very key thing that we Dan and I talked about before this. The play calling mix under under Spags was a lot of cover two, very deep safeties and corners that that played with zone eyes. You don't see that as much now with Betcher. So I think that he had I think he had a strong conclusion of the season. Um, I think he certainly showed he he flashed physicality, which I thought was really cool. He he showed that as a veteran, he showed the other players what it's like to play for a team that that has little to play for. Um, right. And, and, but in terms of getting back to those levels, I'm just not sure I see that. And I think that when you, when you see the new guys come in, um, with Baker specifically, I think he can kind of help, he can help out in areas where, where, where Jenkins struggles. Yeah. I mean, that, that totally makes sense, Nick. It could be a case of, listen, he was a better fit for Spag's system and that's what brought out his best talents. Uh, at the same time, I do think some, some credence should be given to the fact that Jenkins went through a lot last off season. Uh, in addition to what went down with his brother, um, and for those who don't know, you know, his, the house that Janoris Jenkins owned in New Jersey, his brother lived at during the off season when Jenkins spent time in Florida, uh, his, his home area. And there was a dead body found in that home. I don't want to dive too much deeper into this. Uh, but in addition to that, something else really bad happened with him from a family standpoint, to the point where during one of the training camp practices, Jenkins was excused and he left and he came back about a, you know, a few days later, but, and there was not much given by Shermer or anyone, obviously, and Jenkins himself about what actually went down on that day, but something really serious happened with his family. And, he, and I remember he left practice kind of crying. I believe he was in tears. So I think a lot of that does play a bigger role than people think, you know, these are still human beings. And if they're going through bad stuff off the field, it's going to impact their play. And as Nick said, he did play better down the stretch and he played hard because he proved he wants to be a part of this roster and the Giants rewarded him by keeping him on the roster. Now his future, we don't know about the Giants had a lot of defensive backs and he has a massive cap hit during the 2020 season upcoming after this one. And a lot of it can be saved by cutting him. We'll deal with that later. But I do believe that Jenkins has a decent chance to kind of, even if he's not a perfect fit for this system, play better than he did throughout the entire season. But we're going to move on, Nick, and we're going to touch on Jabril Peppers. We talked a lot about him on the podcast when he was acquired. So we're not going to too much into this here, Nick. But I want to know if you, you see any chance of him kind of sliding into the money back role or different roles that you saw from Landon Collins. Um, or is there something, or is there kind of a further. Can you further break down the role we anticipate for Peppers going into his third season after kind of playing a weird hybrid role at Michigan uh, and then obviously now two seasons in the NFL with the Browns? Yeah, playing that Viper role in Michigan uh, where Don Brown basically had to kind of convince him to be a second-tier player by renaming the position, or at least that's how he tells it in clinic season, which is always fun to, to hear. Um, I think that uh, specifically for the money backer, I think a lot of guys are going to have a chance at that slot in, in – third and long situations. Um, I do think though that when you break it down by trait for a second and we're gonna then we're gonna toss him in the buckets. So the traits are that he his range is a lot better than people realize and his ability to play in space, particularly lateral speed at depth, um, I think he could even play in this uh, as lone safety in the post a fair amount of times. I know that's not how a lot of other people see him, but there's a fair amount of shots with his range. I think it's more just kind of getting him used to playing that position. And because, again, kind of like Dan mentioned, he was the Viper in college and he kind of jumps to the NFL and he jumps to Greg's, Greg Williams kind of play calling. And it's a little it's it's a little different. It's a little more cover two based, I would say, or deep safety based. Uh, but within that deep safety frame, I think that, 
you know, he's going to be able to cover just well enough. I think in man coverage, I think he's, he was beaten by very good players last year, but that's just happens. Um, I think his man, so I'm higher on him man coverage wise. And so to put him in the buckets, I would throw him in the, in, in interestingly, predominantly uh, free safety boundary safety bucket. I would also throw him in the nickel back to the field bucket on, on third down blitzing, because I think that he can handle that space with that range um, pretty easily. And I think in the run fit, um, I think, you know, at times in the run fit, he can, he can be bet. He, he can survive there because of basically being with Don Brown and having those drills and, right. and that, that fundamentals. But I don't think he's going to be there the majority of the time. I think his size, I think he's a guy that plays better away from the line of scrimmage than down. So I would put, and I think I talked about this when we, when we broke him down, but I, he's a little bit more like the offspring of Matthew and Collins versus Collins. He's a lighter player that is lighter on his feet. And he's going to be able to kind of, and from a blitzing perspective too, do that. So I think you're you're going to see him blitz from from even a little more of depth uh, with with Betcher as well. I love it. I love it. And listen, I, I got a lot of excitement about Betch. I'm sorry about Peppers in Betcher's scheme, but I, I want to temper it for now. Uh, I, I I want to see it, but I do like the fact that, like you said, Nick, he fits well into multiple buckets on his season because I think that's what it's all about. But I want to talk about a player who may only fit into one bucket, but I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but. I like the bucket he fits into. And I'm talking about Antoine Bethea. And he's a player that I'm going to go to my grave this offseason, telling fans that it was one of the best value signings and overall signings, in my opinion, of the entire offseason. Ageism, I think, is certainly at play from Giants fans and other NFL fans who seem to suffer from the recency bias of the free agent veteran signing Jonathan Stewart last offseason. Listen, Stewart and Bethea have nothing in common besides that they're older players and veterans. When I went back and I watched Bethea in 2018, he was one of the only Betcher holdovers on that defense who made a pretty seamless transition into the new defensive scheme under Steve Wilkes. Was he as good as he was in 2017 when he graded out as a top 10 safety in the NFL, the ninth best in 2017, his last season with Betcher, according to PFF? Maybe not. But guess what? He's back in Betcher's defense. So I love what he's going to bring to the defense in 2019. Nick, am I crazy here? Or, or what am I, what's going on with Bethea? No, no, not crazy. He's someone who I really liked. And and initially, if you remember the, the, the way he was signed, he was signed pretty quickly, I believe, right? And Very, um, First signing yeah, of the offseason. Correct. And and look, we all understand there was a bit of a hole at free safety on the field and and then in the wake of the and in the beginning of the offseason. So that had to be filled. And I think a lot of people want to think, just like Dan said, like it's kind of like, almost like a little bit of cronyism. But at the end of the day, Bethea is very, very smart. His initial range um, and his and his play speed to break off the quarterback is is very is I would I graded it as solid to good, which is pretty good for a player of that age to be able to keep up there. Um, basically, the way the faster a player processes things and the faster he gets his body in motion, the better the chance he has to do things and can make up for for not having the athleticism or the long speed effectively to get to that play. I think Bethea is very strong there. So I throw him in the free safety bucket for sure. The FBI, uh, the football intelligence is going to come in and play there. The ability to get guys lined up. We just talked about some complicated schemes. you got to have someone who can do that on a down-to-down basis who has, ex- who has experience doing it. He has a lot of a lot doing that. The key thing that I think is kind of interesting is that no one really talks about it. He's sneaky good in man coverage on tight ends. And – I didn't know that until I watched. Um, so I watched a lot of even his 18 tape and his, his play strength, his ability to hold up against guys bigger than he is. Um, he's not he's not a guy that you look at and on third down and, and he's caught on a guy and it's like, oh, God, that's a real liability. Um, so that to me can put him 
um, in the boundary safety role as well. And one of those guys that can hover around the line of scrimmage pretty well. He did that a little bit more in 2016 with Betcher than he did in 2017. When I first watched the 17 tape, I was like, this guy's a pure free safety, pure range, yada, yada, yada. And, of course, like the way anything else, you have to really, really dig. And he he, he kind of comes from more of a line of scrimmage background. So I think you're going to have both a free safety and a boundary safety there and a guy that, you know, is going to be – is going to have some sneaky pass deflections, pass breakups against tight ends. No doubt. And as we move forward, Nick, because we kind of as – I, as I said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but – I do kind of see those three playing close to 100% of the snaps. Do you see it similar to that? I think you know if you're coming out in the first four games, and you got to say yes. Um, you know, it, it's just it's just the way it's just the way it goes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> forward then on the roster, Nick. The way I see it, with Jenkins locked in, we've got six cornerbacks with a legitimate shot to fill out those final two cornerback spots when they're in nickel, or the final two defensive back spots. And three spots when they're in certain sub packages. Obviously, some of the sub packages have cases and not corners, which we'll get to. But let's start with the player I'm most excited about to kind of play another big role after this case on defense. And that's DeAndre Jason. Obviously, we broke him down in depth after the first night of the draft in our podcast there. You can go back and find it. And in a subsequent podcast, Jordan Reed touched on him yesterday. I, I touched or on Tuesday when we had him on, and I and we got a little bit more into there. He closed out OTAs the majority of the first team reps nick not all of them but is there really any reason to believe he's not the favorite now for that for one of those and, and you could tell me what cornerback spot this would be but for the other opposite um i think that you know in, in college and this is why we described we decided to to break these to give these field and boundary specifications down for corner because they happen less in the nfl but in college that's that's it, they absolutely played a factor and he was he was a boundary corner at Georgia. He was a really, really, really good one. Um, so yeah, his his physicality and his ability to to play, uh, you know, basically as a as in a lot of man against all different types of wide receivers is, is very, very strong. Um, what you're going to see with him is you're going to see two things. Number one, and Jordan touched on this, his foot speed overall in off coverage, where he's six to seven yards offline of scrimmage and he's facing a guy who's really, really fast. Can he carry that guy down downfield as fast as other guys can? Maybe not. Um, the other area that that's going to be interesting and less people talk about is, you know, he's really physical throughout the route, and you're able to do that in college. You're not able to do that in the NFL. There's absolutely going to be an adjustment period right. there. Barring those two variables, he's going to be starting, and or he's, you know, you're not going to see him coming off the field that much. I think just because his overall competitiveness and his ability to his ability to mirror and match and his ability to basically, you know, it, it, he's just a fiery guy. He's a guy you want to have on the on the field. He's a guy when you watch him, you don't want to stop watching. him. You know, your notes stop, but your the tape doesn't, that type of thing. And so for me, I think that yeah, it's he played mostly boundary in college, but he can certainly play in the NFL on, on either side. Um, and you're gonna have a thing where I don't think that this Betcher defense is gonna match up per se, unless if you're in defined man and you want a certain guy and certain thing, you know, it's by on a play by play basis. Um, it's not gonna be across the board. He's not that type of player. That player really doesn't really exist anymore as much. Um you know, so I think that you're going to have a, sol a real solid starter to start, and someone who you know fans are going to fans may complain about you know the, the the draft capital it took to get him, but at the end of the day, I think they're going to really want this guy on the team. And it's interesting, Nick, because I'm going to because as as we kind of work through, we both kind of agree with those four kind of playing a majority of snaps, but obviously they're a nickel a lot, so we need another defensive back to find to put and, and by last year. And then they were in sub package on 84%. So it's, it's it's almost every snap, guys. So, like, 
I want to break it down like this, Nick, because I'm trying to figure out who's going to be that fifth guy, right? So most people view Baker and then supplement the draft and deal as, as outside cornerback in, in that sense. But obviously, the Giants feel like they're their best cornerback they want to get on the field. Is there any way that you feel like they, any of these guys can fit into the bucket, uh, you know, to be to just just kind of move down to the to the nickel cornerback spot? You know what I'm saying? Is can do they do any of these guys fit another bucket? Great question, and we didn't, and that's something I should have prefaced too. I think that um, I think that on passing downs with Beal, if there's a physical wide receiver um, in third and nine, I'm envisioning like a Julio Jones, um, who's just a freak, right? But he's got length and he's got speed, and if it's a, if they're anticipating a route that's going to be shorter, they may want Sam Beal on him more because his length, his arms, and his length, and his ability to to hold up in that physicality in the short in the short part of the game. That's his that's his strength. If they've got a slot guy, I'm thinking of Mohamed Sanu, you know, bigger player. You don't see many bigger guys in the slot. You know, can Beal bump down and play that one bucket of kind of that covered the man coverage guy there? I absolutely think he can, and he did a little bit in college. I think he can. Um, so I would say it would be Beal kind of as the coverage wild card. I need to see more of him against the run. Um, I know there's a, there's a willingness for physicality in college, but I think it's going to be a little different here. Um, and just kind of want to kind of tighten that up and to really think if he could play that. So I, I see. It, it, I think the big the big trait that he brings is the length and the ability to do that and the ability to to just to play physically. Um, and so I think that when, when that's called on, I think he could be that guy. Very interesting. But let's say, Nick, the Giants don't roll with those three. Um, for the nickel position that we're talking about, um, you know, Grant Haley closed out OTAs, taking the majority of the snaps, but I don't really think that means that much. I think these battles honestly are truly won in training camp. I've I've been to these I've been to these practices, both OTAs at times and training camp last summer. There's nothing going on at OTAs, guys. It's it's not what you think it is, these practices. They're really just trying to install the plays. If we're being completely honest, there's there's no pads, there's no bump coverage. So I want to look forward to I want to I want to frame this as this job, you know, this battle will be decided from this point on. So with that said, Nick, can Grant Haley hold off Julian Love and fit into that nickel bucket, or or who, you know, what do you foresee happening at that nickel spot? I think the predominant snaps. Um, let's think. Let's 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 look at the profiles real quick. To go over to go over Haley real quick. Um, he's five foot nine. He's one hundred ninety pounds. He ran a four four five. Forget the forty for a second. His arms are twenty nine and three quarters long. Okay, his hand size is nine and nine and an eighth. Right. Um, you have a smaller guy. Okay. You have a smaller guy who has a good ability to mirror match. He plays well in soft press, but he fits that coverage bucket against slot wide receivers. He's got pretty good. He's got pretty good intelligence, pretty good football intelligence, pretty good recognition, um, and he's actually a pretty good tackler for his size. But he has massive size limitations, and we've said this from like podcast day one for us. It's like this offseason is everything for him. He needs to gain play strength because he has the range to play that nickel back to the field, but not when there's a pulling, even just a a. Um, I want to say like an arcing tight end to his side. There are just so many examples where he ends up on the ground. And so his physical limitations, it's it it it's a it's a real big load uh, roadblock uh, for me comparing it to someone like a Julian Love. And again, the tape is the tape, but he's a guy who's 5'11", 195. He plays bigger than that. You know, he's slower. Yeah. He's got a four point four five forty. He's slower, but his arm length is thirty one and three quarters inches long. His arm length is basically what three, almost three inches longer. 
you know, so that and that shows up because Haley plays long. But if you have those limitations, there's only so many things you can do. The, the, the ability to shed really comes from that, especially for these players against larger size guys. Now, Julian Love played predominantly boundary corner in college. Um, a very good boundary corner with that. When he blitzed, though, which was super interesting, he played nickel back to the field. Now, there's a little bit of tell on the defense when they did that. It was like kind of, you know, 80% of the time, whatever the numbers are, when he was a nickel back to the field side, he would come sink down the line of scrimmage and blitz, and he blitzed pretty effectively. Um, I see him, the, the, the transition for him is the ability to get comfortable in space, to get comfortable in the fit, and to get consistent with his tackling because he flashed. When, when the plays were run to him frequently in college, he, he tackled pretty well. I think overall playing – you know, when the, when the when the plays weren't run consistently to a side, I think he left a little bit to be desired at the college level. So that's what, you, what, what you're kind of looking for. But I think he's a guy who can potentially fit two buckets. So I look at it like this. You understand what Grant Haley's floor is, but you really understand what Grant Haley's ceiling is too. With Love, you you don't really – his ceiling's undefined because I think it can be – I think he can fit the two-bucket uh, realm for you. Plus, you know he can play on the outside. I don't think Haley can play on the outside against even even-sized – uh, players um, right. in terms of in terms of capping vertical routes, and I I, I hate to say because you want to see these undrafted free agents win, you want to see them make the teams, and I think you can I think you can make a team. I think this team starts to get really really crowded at that level because you've got these guys that just that their upside their 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 ceilings look uh, look higher. Yeah, and I think this is really interesting, Nick, because it brings me to something I wanted to touch on. I know we discussed it a bit off the podcast. You look at a guy like Haley, who obviously you know. Rated out well according to Pro Football Focus, took over a big role last year. But with a lot of, you know, I've actually, something even, you know, you pointed out to me that I could have done a better job of. What, we, what I didn't really focus on or write any articles or content on was the fact that the Giants lost, not lost, or yeah, lost the time word. Both of the Giants' defensive backs coaches left the team. One went to Chicago. Uh, and uh, and that's Anna Ramo. And I forgot where did the other one go, Nick? I, I can't remember, but he's he's yeah. basically instead of assistant defensive backs coach, um, sure. Deshae Townsend is a full defensive backs coach. Sure. So it's not that part of it is not important where he went. The part that me and Nick discussed is that they didn't really get promotions. And even Pat Shermer during his press conference kind of shrugged and said, "I guess they left for promotions." Really, it was a lateral movement. They or, or the opposite of that they 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 have similar jobs to what they had and. Deshae Townsend is the one who brought over Curtis Riley with him. He was a hand-picked safety who came with him. That's the reason he was there. But the point that me and Nick were trying to make here is that with new defensive back coaching, it's a clean slate, I believe, for all these guys. And I don't think that what Haley's done in the past is going to have much to say on what's going to happen. Can he still win a job on this roster? Sure. But now we have to do it. And a lot of guys, a lot more talent that fits into the position that he played last year where, you know, there wasn't much talent that fit into that bucket last year. You know, they weren't going to throw B.W. Webb there in that nickel spot. And, and they needed him on the outside. The guy played like 95% of the snaps, which is hideous. But the point I'm trying to make is that with a clean slate, both me and Nick are going to say one thing before we get to training camp, and that's keep an eye on Haley because neither of us are that confident that he's even going to make the roster, let alone hold on to that nickel position. Because, again, this harps on what we've been talking about, right, Nick? They want oh, you, guys who fit into multiple buckets, right? Right, absolutely. And just to jump in too before, because I'm the one who, who talked about Anarumo before um, on offline. It's not Chicago. He went to before the before the fact checkers crush us. He went to Cincinnati, and that job was something that they couldn't fill for like six weeks. Um, and it was a spot that was very very tough. No, no one wanted to be the defensive coordinator there for kind of a lot of reasons. 
Um, and uh, they, they ended up hiring him. And so it absolutely was a promotion, but it was one of those jobs where it was like, it, it, it was, he was like, oh my God, he, he took that job. Um, right. and, so, and so anyway, that's just, just, a, just for the fact checking. But yes, in terms of the buckets, um, you know, I think that's what, that's what you got. That's what we're seeing because you're, you're looking for those, those guys that can be painted with multiple brushes. Yep, no doubt. So as we move forward, I will want. I do want to talk a little bit, Nick, about a guy who intrigues me, and that's Tony Lippett. I'm um, gonna be honest with you; it's a crowded depth chart. It's gonna be hard to crack. But you know what? I saw some awesome athleticism out of him at Michigan State. He's a former wide receiver, played D back there as well, and then he had a lot of success at the NFL level at cornerback with Miami Dolphins before the injuries. Now, the injuries. Who knows how people recover from injuries? We've seen players like Akeem Nix never recover from a lower body injury. It derailed his entire career. Similar situation with Victor Cruz. But if he's healthy again, it wouldn't shock me if Lippitt is a surprise of, of, of training camp. Nick, do you have any thoughts on his game and kind of how he fits into these buckets? Um, I think what's hard is um, it's not just a limited tape thing. The tape that he has, he had some some pretty some, some gaffes um, and some stuff where, you know, one of the big plays I'm remembering, his play speed to get to where he needed to on the right angle was just not where it, where, where it was. And so I think you got to see more reps within the – within the system. And then, you know, yeah, he's going to have the athleticism, but the one thing that I kept on, that I wrote a couple of times on, and again, there's not many snaps is, you know, his intelligence to play speed, his intelligence to get to where he's going. And it's funny because right. you brought him up. And then I kind of thought of Tate Davis too, in really the same way, a guy who I like as an athlete, ex safety, trying to play that linebacker position. And, you know, there's just multiple times, even just from the tape today, I'm watching other guys and it's like, wait, where's that? Who's covering? Oh, that's Tate Davis. He's not there yet. There's multiple examples like that. And, doesn't mean the guy can't do it. It's just that his play speed has to get to the point where he can play assignment sound in, in a defense that changes his assignments often. Yeah, that's fair. It is still a long shot, guys, and I'm not well aware of that. But I want to move forward with the safeties a bit here, Nick. I'm going to let you kind of go freestyle at one point because we're going to want to look the other guys who can fit into these buckets. But I want to start with Sean Chandler. Uh, the Giants signed Chandler as an undrafted rookie free agent last year at a temple. And he has a pretty awesome story. He grew up living homeless shelter to homeless shelter. He had to help provide for his family. Really tough kid. Worked his way onto the Temple rosters uh, as a walk-on. Eventually captain there. The the coach there. Uh, like a, a human being and a player. Uh, he didn't play that much. But you kind of see some upside here. And he said, no advantage to like, what possibly might get in Um, I think what's interesting with him is um, he's a guy – Chandler's a guy that didn't get a lot of snaps. Um, but there's kind of an interesting – when you watch his tape, there's you notice a few things. You can't just – when you watch a player, you can never just watch his plays. You kind of have to watch the entire game to see the context of the game. That sounds obvious, but a lot of guys don't like to do that. Um, one thing you see with Chandler, he was really playing in competition with, with, uh, with Michael Thomas most of the time. Michael Thomas is a guy that's a veteran, can line guys up, can really help on the on the pre-snap phase of the game. Um, that's what really blocked a lot of the Chandler snaps, um, especially after Collins went down. Uh, in the wake of Collins not being there, there's very few guys that can help line the defense up. So Sean Chandler's coming in at 5'10", uh, 205 pounds. So already you see a little bit more bulk. Um it's funny in terms of his body, it looks like he can add a little more mass in terms of, I think he can actually get a little bigger in terms of the way, the way he holds his frame, even at five ten. Uh, but I really liked the snaps that he played. I really like his play speed. I really like his change of direction um, and his movement skills 
while he's retreating from the line of scrimmage. Um, and I think that you could look at a guy that could fit the bucket of boundary safety, money backer on passing downs, and even nickel back to the other side and against against kind of stockier or even tight end type matchups when he faced 12 personnel and he would basically be the big dime safety. Um, I think he needs further development. You're going to see more. You're going to want to see further development in um, just overall recognition and overall reps. Like, you know, there's stuff that he hasn't seen yet because he was in kind of a limited role. Uh, but, you know, in the coverages that I described, um, with, the, with one coverage I described earlier in the show, uh, you know, he has to he has to retreat from the line of scrimmage. And a couple of guys pick me on Twitter like, wow, I feel really bad for that guy. It's really hard to do. And I, I, we had the conversation. It's like, hey, when you're asked to do that, then reset your eyes downfield. It's I thought of it like a quarterback turning his back to the, def- to the, to the defense and then having to reset once he comes to the top of his drop and play action. It's very, very similar. So you got to have a guy with good play speed, a guy who knows what to identify, and he's in kind of a crucial position kind of in the last line of defense there. So, you know, the coach feels good enough about his range to ask him to run 20 yards to start the play. Uh, and then his play speed to basically get to get his eyes in the right position once he gets there. Uh, so for me, that was one of the bigger things. I liked his ability as a blitzer, uh, something that he has to you know, continually get better on. But he showed of the guys outside of Collins and to some degree Curtis Riley, he was the third best blitzer. And that that it's very hard for defensive backs to blitz. Grant Haley can, I'm sure, can attest. Guys can attest. Michael Thomas can attest. It's it's not something that they do naturally. Playing through contact when the contact comes from a guy who's much bigger than they are, and then doing it efficiently to get to the quarterback as fast as humanly possible. Um, so, like I said, like I like Chandler. I like Chandler to make the team. I like Chandler to make the team as a backup role, filling those boundary safety, uh, boundary safety money backer buckets on passing downs and potentially nickelback. Yeah, I mean, listen, you look at it, and obviously he needs development. You were clear about that. That's pretty obvious. But hey, guy who fits into potentially three buckets, a guy who is not a bad blitzer guy who's awesome for them on special teams, it feels to me like I can lock him into my 53-man roster. I really do feel that way. They're not just looking for, you know, they're looking for guys like that. That's the whole point of all this with the Giants defense. Um, but let's move on to a player who might not come into as many talks. I'm going to wrong, and that's Michael Thomas. What do the Giants have with Michael Thomas? So Michael Thomas, they've got a veteran. They've got a guy who, kind of like we described, um, he fits that third bucket really, really well as a safety who's just who's basically not a liability in the run fit. He's not amazing in the run fit, or as a or as a or close down the box as an overhang, I should say. And he and he feels good. Um, he feels good as a safety and coverage, and he's a veteran presence. What I find interesting about this is is with Bethea on the team, is he going to get as many snaps or is his role going to shift back to more of a pure special teams role? Right. And I don't think that, again, I don't think that's really a bad thing because this team prides itself on special teams. He's a special teams captain too, right? So yep. so you're, you're, it's not like, oh, I don't think he's going to get cut. I'm just saying, like, are, are, is he going to be in the mix in these buckets as much as I think? Uh, maybe not, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be on, you know, he's not going to be, he's not going to be a, big, a big part of the team. No doubt. Um, but let's dive into a little bit more of a sleeper pick here, Nick. And that's the 2019, this draft class, undrafted rookie free agent Mark McLaurin. And if not, I think if not for that 4-7, 740-yard dash he unfortunately ran, he gets drafted. I think it's a lock because what jumped off the page to me was, you know, the game where he had three interceptions against Lamar Jackson in the bowl game in 2017. He's a guy who made an impact on defense for, for Mississippi State. But here's my question for you. Where do you see him – uh, what do you see from him and kind of where does he fit bucket wise into what Betcher wants to do? So McLaurin's an interesting dude just because he's a bigger player, right? He's six one, like two ten. 
Um, and he has, you know, like, like Dan said, the foot speed really wasn't there. And I think the other part that has to be explained for context is the Mississippi State defense, which he was playing for, I forget the coordinator in 17, uh, where he played almost exclusively in a too high role, um, particularly to the weak side. So he's playing a boundary safety role most of the time compared to Shoup last year, um, coming in his first year as defensive coordinator uh, under um, – under Moorhead, uh, and basically the defense there was way more multiple. Now he took the bulk of his snaps from the from a from a, a deep safety a too high deep safety role um, most of the time on the boundary, but he mixed in a lot more down into the basically as a as a weak side kind of hybrid. The basically the back safety the, the boundary safety moving down and the fronts changing and yada yada things moving around more. The bottom line is his his responsibilities range. We're talking about a guy that was responsible for the quarterback and pitch and a lot of blitzes when they were running against the backside of zone read to, um, you know, a weak side safety as a, as a, as a hook buzzer, you know, all different types of stuff. And man, he was actually, he what surprised me the most. And why I got the most excited about him was that he actually improved movement skill wise. I think from junior to senior year, you kind of rarely see that his junior year, he was very stiff in his upper body and he kind of ran a certain way where, I didn't like his backpedal. I'm, uh, again, he was a little bit off balance. His ability to change direction wasn't really there. The coaching in 18 was clearly different because he looked different. And when you see a player be able to respond in a positive way, it doesn't mean, oh, the coaching was bad one year and good the other. It's, it means that he can actually get better as things around him change. That doesn't right. happen a lot. Most players get worse when things around them change because it's human nature. It's very difficult to handle that. And so I see a guy that can basically be adaptable. Now, fast forward, does he have really the foot speed to play the boundary safety and the free safety position as much. I don't think so. Not just because he's a player that a lot of guys, a lot of scouting jargon loves to say this phrase. He's quicker than fast. He's in short area space. I like his ability and his balance and his ability to come downhill in a, in a larger area space. I don't like it as much. Um, and I think that if you put if you put him predominantly in a two deep, in a two high roll coming downfield, I think in the NFL, he may, he may see some struggles. Um, so I do see him more. And I think apparently and art Stapleton from uh Ted asked this question of Betcher, and Betcher wanted to try him here. He wanted us to see on, on the passing downs for the money backer role, and then I think to kind of grow from there. So to be honest, I see him more in competition with Tate Davis for that third linebacker position. And I see him as a guy that, you know, the examples to me, he's he's solid in in almost all traits around the line of scrimmage. So when we say solid, we're talking about four four out of seven roughly. So that's not, by the way, that's pretty good in terms of an overall, you know, and an ability for the, for the guy to, to transfer to the next level. I would see that as a, as a good thing. But what's where I think guys were down on him was because his partner was, was, was Abrams, who was a freak of an athlete, right. and a freak of a tackler. And the one thing that you got to say about McLaurin is he wasn't super physical at the point of attack. He's not a big thumper. He's not a guy who was laying the pads. I question his body control to his upper body control, but to, uh, when he had to, he carries his pads so high often that it's hard for him to get to the right level and he can kind of get run over a little bit. But I think if you put him in linebacker drills and got him a little bit more in tune to, to playing with the correct pad level and didn't ask him to play in space, I think he absolutely could, could play that around the line of scrimmage role. And that's why he dropped off so much. And it's just so funny when you're watching tape and you see guys that are like unbelievable freaks, a lot of times the other guys who are very good, but they just don't have that same level get lost in the wash. And I really think that was that was that was a, that was a big part of it. And um, 
And I don't think that I think he actually played a very important role within that within the Shoop scheme because he his his he was rarely ever caught out of out of position and he was actually yelling at people to get in position more than you saw him on any other player on that team. So he clearly understood what was being asked of him and he could clearly help others understand what was being asked of them. That is it. I think that's a huge huge prerequisite for all because basically everyone we just described besides Sam Beal. I could really confirm that for on tape where guys are like, wow, like their ability to get to where they need to be very quickly is very apparent. Now, are their traits and skills as good as some of the other guys, the other freaks in the draft? No, but their, their, their ability, their ability to process what they see and to do it very, very fast is absolutely there. Well, that's awesome to hear because obviously, as we know, that's a really important trait for James Vetcher's defense. We've gone over why, uh, but just, you know, tarp on it just one more time again. Listen, it's a defense that's expecting these defensive backs to play multiple roles. But something interesting to me about McLaurin that you mentioned, you know, is kind of that potential to play that third linebacker role because we're not looking at your traditional safety. McLaurin was measured in at six foot one, 212 pounds. He could probably easily get that up to 220, 31, almost 32 inch arms, had a vert jump of 36 inches. Um, and listen, he's a guy who was the MVP of the Tax Slayer Bowl. In addition to intercepting Jackson three times, Lamar Jackson, he also had 11 tackles. And in back-to-back season, he's had 79 and 74 tackles, four and a half for loss during his senior year. And that's, like you said, playing a different defensive system. So I think he's a big sleeper for this roster, Nick. And with on that note, we are going to close out our coverage of the Giants defensive backs. Hopefully this taught you a lot about where this team is headed in that direction. Um, and also, hopefully, you know, if you have any questions, always feel free to hit us up on Twitter. We are there to answer them. But there are a few questions from the fans for this week that we're going to get into. Um, we we'll start with Benji, who has a couple questions. Benji asked, the first one is, it seems like Sam Beal is getting lost in the shuffle. Where would you guys rank him among the other defensive backs? Um, I think I think you would throw him at CB3 um, yeah. from, the, from the outside guys and competing for the – for the inside guys, the boundary safety overhang bucket, I would throw him. I would throw him as like a specialty situation, so it would depend on the yeah. opponent, and 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 that's how I would think of it. It's not, and that's why again, veteran, you can't always have just one personnel for each team week in and week out. So you're gonna, I think you you will see him mixed in that way. I think that makes sense, Nick. I do think there's a little more room for potential growth if Baker is a kind of guy who he feels comfortable with in that in those other two buckets, the nickel or the you know you know what I'm saying there. So then he can kind of roll with a with a Beal Jenkins outside or or vice versa with Jenkins. Does that make oh, sense? Yeah, yeah, and it also makes sense too because don't forget. I mean, again, I'm not down on Baker. I really like the pick, but if you have two games or one or two games where he gets DPI penalties, like two and three down the field, you know, because he's used to playing more physical and you have that type of adjustment, you could see more of Beal earlier, maybe. You know, sure. that type of thing. It just, again, the way we look at this is it's not good, bad. It's players transition to the next level. It takes time to adjust ever for everybody for all different types of reasons. And, and yeah, I would say Beal is a little bit more attuned to that than, than coming out of the gate than Baker. No doubt. And then Benji also asked, would you say the Giants are prioritizing players with athleticism and versatility over players that are just really good at one thing? Yeah, yeah, it's a good uh do we, do we create this podcast to answer that question? <laughs> Literally, yeah. I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize that that was, that was the second question. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think that's a great way to think of it. Um, you know, do one of these guys or, or one of these players, anyone that we just mentioned, are they the best at their position from an athletic perspective? Probably not, you know, and I would definitely say no. Um, you know, the versatility trait and the mental and the mental kind of acumen is what I would, is what I would say. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. Um, Andre asks one of the reasons the Giants drafted Daniel Jones because he was pro ready, quote unquote. So why are they so insistent on keeping him on the bench? Sentimentality for sentimentality for Eli yet again, or is there actual logic in keeping a three year college starter on the bench until week seventeen? Yeah, so this gets into, um, you know, I, I would just first say, and I'm not trying to object or say that's wrong or the label was put on the wrong, but I don't really think he was pro ready. And I, I can't really say that if I have him develop metal as a pocket passer, which right. is that, that trait for that area for me, his traits show that he's developed metal. I think it's, I think you could take the biggest Daniel Jones fan. I think if you, you know, they're not going to say, Hey, he's, he's, he's the best pocket passer. So I don't think that's pro ready. Now, how you get pro ready I and Dan and I kind of talked about this on that on the Jones podcast. I don't think it's from mental reps. I don't think he needs any more time to understand what's being asked of him. I think it's actually physically going through those reps to help with his footwork, to help with his timing, to help with his ability to distribute to his second and third read accordingly in an offense that's it's not that it's necessarily more more complex. It's just you're asking the guy to do a wider range of things, a wider range of plays on a more consistent basis. Um Excuse me. So that that's where I see it's not it's not necessarily logic in keeping him on the bench. I think it's more. I guess I want to say this without without actually believing it, but I think it's because you know um, Shermer thinks that Eli can give him the best chance to win. Why why that why that starter is going to be there? People say that's crazy. That no matter no matter what, Eli is going to be the starter, and I get it because of all the because of it's the New York Giants and it's Eli. But I genuinely think that that Shermer thinks that in a week one basis. You know, Eli's going to give you the better chance to win, and he's going to, and and uh, and Jones is going to give you the better chance as a backup. And listen, these things are not mutually exclusive, guys. I can believe that the smart play for the Giants long term is to bring Daniel Jones in for Week One because the exact reason Nick brought up, which I do agree with, that the more physical, the more actual reps he gets, the better he'll be for the future. But at the same time, I can actually agree with Shermer, and I do that Eli Manning gives them the best chance to win week one because, guys, rookies don't just come in and steal the show. I don't know what football you've been watching, but take a look at the highly touted rookie class from 2018, with the exception of Baker Mayfield. None of them moved the ball consistently. Josh Allen had a couple fun runs and a couple fun deep passes, but the guy threw 52%, completed 52% of his passes, and they punted a hell of a lot. Darnold, the same thing. Rosen, the same thing. There is a transition for these quarterbacks to get used to the processing at the NFL speed and the NFL speed of the game. And in week one, I just don't believe that anyone can convince me that Daniel Jones would be better for the offense than Eli Manning. That's just how I feel about rookie quarterbacks. While again, at the same time, I believe he should be playing week one regardless, because I don't think there's much of a ceiling for the Giants with Eli Manning. So I just don't see the point of Eli Manning. So again, these things aren't mutually exclusive. There's a lot that goes into them. And I believe there it can be debated on different levels. Uh, but we'll move on to Big Blue Bobby who asks, Hey guys, I, I love the podcast and the tweets. Is there a reason why you didn't talk about what we see as Dex loss as Dexter Lawrence's potential with Justin Reed? He honestly didn't sound like he went that in depth. Dip in production. You know, and I think that the, this gets into kind of this gets in a tape study a little bit and how guys see players. Um, and you know, um, I think you can kind of get different judgments and different takes and kind of agree that the same traits are there, but that you think that at the next level as they transition, which is the whole goal of what you're looking to do when you project, he doesn't 
uh, I should say Jordan didn't see the traits coming that I saw in terms of pass rushing. And maybe it's because he didn't see those snaps in those games because guys like me that are bowled up on, on, um, on Lawrence have to, you know, have to have to show you the tape and we have where, but those are, those are, those examples don't happen on the majority of snaps. The majority of snaps that you're seeing when he's in the four eye rushing, he's in a bull rush and yeah, he gains ground. But in terms of actual production, you know, you don't see that actual production like, like Dan hinted or what was hinted is that, you know, he was injured as well. So you don't see that same type of production. And I think that what happens is how a player has to change and how it's a, it's kind of a moving stick as you evaluate a human who's going to change. And he's 340 pounds. He said publicly, he wants to cut that weight. Right. Well, I like, I like that. I see that his projected traits are going to get better with less weight. And so there's things like that where I think that's where the difference in the evaluation comes. It's not saying that, Hey, you, you'll rarely find two guys that have watched tape that do it professionally that go, I see this trait. And the other guy goes, no, that trait's not there at all. They both see the traits, but the varying degree in which they see them and then how they see them transitioning in the future to either a different playing field or to a different team. That's where the difference comes in. And so, yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't kind of, press on that or kind of ask him more on that because he he saw him as an interior two gap run stuffer which is what i think he i think that's basically his floor um and that's what excites me is that i will totally agree that yeah that that's what you got but the upside specifically for what the giants need in stunts which yeah. it was so funny watching <laughs> watching the giants the last two days i've really gotten deaf with the dvs and like you keep on watching these these four-man rushes with the stunts and they're just so ineffective Right. The drivers and the stunts are just not gaining ground. It's like, yeah, that's what he's really good at. And so I think that dynamic um, within within the, the Giants system is going to really help. And it's something that, yeah, unless if you really think, if you're really in tune to that as, as a giant need, you may not see that as, as a trait needed. And listen, if you want to talk to me about specific Giants needs, Nick, I'm going to tell you that being a driver in the stunt is, uh, as a player, a player who can be a driver in the stunt game is one of their biggest needs. And you, you, harped on this, Nick, so we don't need to go too much further. But I do want to mention one more thing, Bobby. If you take, if you, if you give up on the idea that sacks are everything for a defensive lineman's production standpoint from a pass rush standpoint, and you look at the pass rush productivity percentage, um, and that's something that Pro Football Focus does, and that, you know, it just combines their hurries, their, their sacks, and their hits. And again, even Nick said it best with the simulated pressures, even you can't really get a full grasp of pass rush because, you know, those aren't always considered a hurry, but they do do a decent job tracking them. And he's right up there with some of the interior linemen from the 2019 class is the best pass rush productivity uh, grade. So, you know, if you kind of get away from the sacks or everything, you start to see that he really wasn't that unproductive, even while playing through an injury uh, and during those seasons. And again, when you add in what Nick said about him playing at a different weight, uh, you know, there's a lot of upside. And in addition to the floor, we got one more question for today. And it's from Zach Mahoney, who asks, can I convince you to go into detail with Pat Shermer's offense, I noticed last year there was a lack of deep ball thrown. Is that more of Pat Shermer's playbook, or was it because he understood the limitation of his offensive line's lack of production past two and a half seconds? Thanks. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. You know, within um, you know within within what Pat what Pat and many coaches do, and it's nothing that it's something that it's not really rocket science. Um, you know, the bulk of what Shermer would call would be flood concepts. So the flood concept being one deep player to one side of the field, to the same side, a medium level player, and to the same side, a, a lower level, a, a flat player, basically a short route. Um, and just mixing and matching, matching and doing a lot of dressing up those types of concepts the most and, and basically going there. So you're, you're looking in a, in a concept that, at least for that half of the field, that is going to have one vertical guy. 
and yeah, did you have that one vertical guy being thrown to often? Um, no. Uh, and so I think it's a function of the fact that the bulk of Pat Shermer's success is in the intermediate range, right. um, which you're talking about 12 to 18 yards downfield. Now, the only thing that gets a little funky about this that I think fans don't really realize until they spend half their, too much of their life watching tape if you have a three-step drop from shotgun and you throw a, a rhythm fade, so the, you hit the top of your drop and you're sending the ball right away, that's is that a deep shot or is that a rhythm read in the first read? That ball is going to hit at 22 to 24 yards downfield. So that's technically a deep ball, but if you watch that, if I show you those clips, you go, that looks like almost like an intermediate route to me. So I, the, way, the disconnect I would say sometimes is that Shermer's concepts – aren't sending two guys often deep down the field as both eligible receivers and guys that are probably going to get the ball within the read. Um, you just don't see that as much. And it's, it's to the, to the questioner's point about, Hey, you know, the, there's not a lot of time. And quite frankly, you don't have a quarterback that wants to do that. Right. Um, I think that's, that's a big point that, with that kind of goes lost. In this. Correct. It, it, and it does get lost, but let's be honest. It's not guys like me say, it, it's really not that big of a deal in today's NFL where the bulk of, throws are between three and 11 yards you know and i yeah. just said and we just kind of said that intermediate routes can be pushed down the field to 18 to 20 yards i do think though like we've talked about the wide receiver groups you need guys that are vertical threats and that this is answering the question of the third part of it they didn't have a genuine guy that i think could generate separation all the time i think obj did it when he when obj is given a break in his route i think he's like the best in the league when he was running straight fades or even corner routes i was kind of on i was underwhelmed by his play last year doesn't mean I, you know, I think he's bad. I just think that he didn't, he didn't have as good a year as he has uh, had. The past. You don't call OBJ the greatest thing. God <laughs> forbid. I'm glad you didn't say this on Twitter, Nick. Right. No. Right. It's one of those things. Like, I don't think he's a bad player. I just don't think he played as well as he did in that area of the field as he as he has in, in at other seasons. Um, if you give him a break, he was awesome. He was really, really good. And so I think you know the straight fade ball or to like the deep, deep double post balls. Yeah, they didn't have guys that or they didn't have a, a play style that really that went through that, but not, not much of the league is going that way. Um, but I think it's something where with one vertical threat, one bona fide vertical threat, I think it could help the intermediate routes the most. Um, so I hope that answers the question from three different angles. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an in-depth question. So hopefully we got you there. If not, feel free to follow up with us on Twitter. But on that note, guys, we are going to be signing off on today's show. Um, please, again, if you guys do enjoy the show, we really do appreciate you guys helping us grow the show. And the best way to do that is by downloading every episode. That's the key metric. But also rate and subscribe, uh, rating us and subscribing to our podcast. And then just telling more Giants fans who you think would enjoy this about the show. Uh, we will be back uh, at some point soon. Obviously, I'm taking my first and much-needed vacation uh, starting on Monday, and it will be about a 10-day vacation uh, where I will be in the mountains. I'm going to Glacier National Park and Banff National Park, so I'll be out of service, uh, as they say. And so me and Nick will probably be taking a little bit of a break, but we will be back, and we'll be hitting it hard, and we can't wait to get that preseason game film rolling so we can really do what we enjoy the most about this podcast and what really got us, gave us the idea for the podcast. So on that note, guys, thanks again for tuning in, and we will talk to you soon. And as, as you guys know, as I do like to end this thing, go Giants.
The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.